0: In Strength to Love, the Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. says this about disappointments in life, and I wanted to share it. He says that one way a person responds to disappointments is to adopt a fatalistic philosophy, stipulating that whatever happens must happen and that all events are determined by necessity. Fatalism implies that everything is foreordained and inescapable. And then he goes on to say some fatalists are very religious people who think of God as the determiner and controller. Of destiny. And then he says this to sink in the quicksands of fatalism is both intellectually and psychologically stifling. Because freedom is a part of the essence of humanity, the fatalist, by denying this freedom, becomes a puppet and not a person. Well, as we continue our Heretics sermon series, we're going to be talking today about something that might be a little bit sensitive, a little bit touchy, but I think is really important to grapple with. And it's this idea of fatalism or being a fatalist or maybe better termed a Christian fatalism or being a Christian fatalist. And I love these words um, from King, giving us perspective that this is only one way to deal with life's disappointments, but it might not be the fullest or most fruitful way. I want to open this up in prayer that the Holy Spirit would guide each of us to be honest about how we deal with disappointments in life. And that we would have a better picture of God's goodness and grace, no matter the circumstances we're facing. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing and how you're moving. Holy Spirit, help us to engage with this topic well. Father, continue to show us your love and your goodness and your character through Scripture as a community gathered together. Amen. Well, this is a phrase that you might have said before, or even, to be honest, heard me say in previous years. Everything happens for a reason. And one pastor provides a little bit of clarity on this, and I thought it was really helpful for me personally. He says that there's a very big difference between saying everything happens for a reason, and God gives reason to everything that happens. I'll repeat that just in case you missed it. You might have said, you know, everything happens for a reason, but perhaps the more accurate thing is this. God gives reason to everything that happens. Now, I know that this is maybe a sensitive subject, even though some of the theological terms might be new to you, but it really is this idea of how do we deal with the world unfolding around us? And I think this Perspective or this heresy becomes tempting, particularly in situations that are difficult or upsetting or discouraging. But here's some of my concerns with fatalism I think that when we slip into fatalism, we do so because it sounds comforting. That there's a reason for everything, and usually fatalism suggests that with a capital R. There's a reason for everything, and it gives us a little bit more oomph, a little bit more energy to get through whatever trial or season that we're in. But I'm concerned because long term, I believe that fatalism leaves us in an unhealthy place, and here's how it does so. Fatalism leaves us, if you're taking notes, to a place of being helpless and hopeless, And as we read the New Testament, as we see the ways which Jesus and then the Holy Spirit empowers followers of Jesus to operate in the giftings and power of the Spirit, to share this incredible good news with all those around them, we see that the disciples who become the apostles and those that are added to that number in the early church could not be described as helpless or hopeless. See, God's idea, God's plan is that we would be hopeful That's why in Philippians, it encourages us to think about whatever is true, pure, noble, praiseworthy, to put our attention on the things that reveal God's goodness, and that we would also be empowered. That Jesus, when he proclaims to the disciples that they will do even more than he's done, he's not speaking about technology. He's not speaking about my giftings or your passions. He's speaking about his friend, the Holy Spirit, who would empower. In the story of Acts, it can be really easy to get distracted, especially in the first two chapters with the manifestations, the outworkings of the Spirit, tongues, healing, prophecy, things that I believe still happen to this day. But we have to ask the reason, why do those things happen? And they happen to empower the believer for ministry. Ministry beyond what they think or feel or know. Ministry so that they could truly be part of this redemption story. And I love that the Holy Spirit views us not as spectators, but as participants, as collaborators on this incredible rescue plan for humanity. When I think about fatalism, I think that one of the shortcomings beyond what I've already mentioned is that if you follow that train of thinking for too long and the suffering or difficulty becomes too weighty, then I think you'll have an image of God that is Viewing him as being disengaged or far off. And that's not true at all. I mean, the eminence of God in the person of Jesus, like we've been talking about, is such a key idea of understanding the Messiah, both in prophecies in the Old Testament and in the reality of who he was as a person in the New Testament. Now, I I do want to say this. I do believe that there are reasons that things happen. But my list of reasons go beyond just God's divine intervention. That could be a reason. But I think a lot of things happen because of my sin or the sins of others around me. I think things happen because in Ephesians, it says that there are principalities and powers of this world that are dark and that are evil. That there is Satan, the accuser, the Satan, who is working and who is going to be defeated by Jesus, but the story is still in process. I think that things happen sometimes by chance, by a mistake, by coincidence. Now, I believe that God can use all those things, but I don't believe that redemption tells us that he caused all those things just for our character development, because I don't think that gives us a picture of a loving and kind and gracious father. So circling back a little bit, maybe it's helpful that we'd switch our language from everything happens for a reason To God gives reason to everything that happens. In Romans 8, we see a wonderful picture of God working towards the good of those who believe in him. And then it kind of gives us a picture of what that is. God working for good in our lives is his glory, his goodness being revealed, and us being transformed and conformed to the person of Jesus, living a life of love and self-sacrifice, attuned to the will of the Father. Now, I know that this message is probably going to bring up a lot of questions about sovereignty. And before you cast me out as a heretic, I do believe that God maintains sovereignty. But I want to give you a slightly different perspective. And to jump off into that, I want to read from the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Jesus is about to be sentenced to be crucified. And he's having this exchange with the leaders of the day. And in verse 11, it says this, He says, you, speaking to Pilate, will have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And really what Jesus is getting at is that this is a redemption plan that's unfolding and that Pilate's role, although significant, isn't determinative. And in fact, I love how this begs us to ask the question, what is the greater expression of sovereignty? God controlling all things at all moments for all people or God delegating, giving away some of his authority and then respecting the choices that people make with it. See, I believe that as we read the creation narrative, we see God giving up some of his sovereignty. It sounds weird to say, but he gives people the opportunity to turn away from him. C.S. Lewis says that God did not desire or require automatons, but instead want a relationship with real people who could make decisions. That's why later in the great divorce, Lewis talks about eternity apart from God, what we would call hell. And he says that that is a gesture of love from God, respecting the decisions that people make. Now, I think that sometimes it can be comforting to assume that God is behind every nook and cranny. And yes, I do believe that everything is spiritual, that everything has redemptive value, that no one's story is over, that you're not your past, you're not your mistakes, you're not your faults or sins. But I think that if we're honest, life seems to be a lot messier in my experience than just this kind of causal relationship that God kind of started in a domino effect to the reality that he is with us and near us. But we all make choices, some wise and some foolish, some good and some evil. And then people make choices around us. I remember for the first time going to get surgery on my back. I've had several procedures and two major back surgeries. And I think it was the very first time several years ago that I underwent surgery that I really, I came into this moment in my own story where the faith that I grew up with that saw God is controlling every little thing, I realized that, that I started to struggle with how God could lead me or cause me to experience the pain I was feeling both emotionally, psychologically, and of course, physically. Now, many of you have had more difficult stories and trials than I have had, but this is for me where I feel like this theology didn't always make sense. And I want to be careful because our theology should define our experience. Our experience shouldn't define our theology. But here's the caveat. All theology is experienced. And so I'm not comparing my back surgeries and difficulties in my health against scripture and thinking, wow, I guess... That's not true about God. I'm thinking about how Scripture reveals Jesus, how it reveals the Father and the Spirit as life-giving, as healing, as opposed to disease and suffering. And then when my life begins to experience those things, I have to realize that there are other factors at play. Now, I don't want to minimize the view of God in our stories, but I do want us to be honest about the spiritual realities that exist. And I think you probably know this just as well as anyone. The decisions you make matter, but the decisions people make around you also matter greatly. I love that we kind of have a little bit of an Old Testament kind of backdrop, for maybe some of the questions that are coming up in light of this message, right? We, many of us grew up hearing that God, His love is unchanging, and that's true. But I think some of us also grew up with this idea that like God doesn't change His mind, which leads us, if we're being thoughtful, is how does prayer and fasting work? And what role does intercession play in the life of the believer? And I'm not going to be able to answer all of the questions to your kind of fullest contentedness, In the next few minutes, but I do want to provide a biblical alternative to some unhelpful theology, some maybe heresy um, that we've believed. And again, this is deconstruction for the purpose of reconstruction. Deconstruction without reconstruction leaves us spiritually homeless. This is so that we could see and experience God's goodness in a clearer way, maybe even closer to the way that He intended. It's interesting, in Exodus chapter 32, I'll just reference this, God is angry. Uh, at his people who he's just delivered from bondage and slavery. They they responded very weirdly to this miracle. They built a golden calf and had an all-night orgy. Never, ever a good idea as a response to God's goodness. So God's upset. He says to Moses in chapter 32, I'm going to consume these stiff-necked people and use you to begin a whole new nation. So it seems like Moses is in the clear, but these people that he's been leading, hundreds of thousands, are not. And then what's interesting, Moses pleads with God to not destroy the Israelites. And so in Exodus thirty-two, fourteen, it says this, So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And that's from the New King James Version. So already we see that God is willing in his goodness and because of his sovereignty to interact and engage with his people in a way that would cause him to intervene or to not intervene in a particular way. See, prayer changes things. And I think sometimes we get a partial picture of this, and I want us to have a fuller picture. And I've been guilty of this, too, in my own life and in my preaching. But prayer changes things. And here's three ways or three things that it changes. Prayer changes me. Prayer changes circumstances or other people. And prayer can change the heart and mind of God. There are so many examples of this. We see it again in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 20. This is probably one of my favorite stories of this in the Old Testament. King Hezekiah is sick and near death. The prophet Isaiah, God's spokesperson, goes to him and he says, kind of set your affairs in order. Your life is about to end. And then Hezekiah, the king, not the prophet, get this. He turns his face towards the wall, not sure why. He prays and says, God, remember how I've walked with you. Now God hears the prayer and get this before Isaiah leaves the room, Isaiah gives the response from God. How cool is that? It says this Isaiah says to Hezekiah from the Lord, Tell him I'm going to heal him, add 15 more years to his life, and deliver Jerusalem from the hand of the Assyrians. So that's chapter 20, verses 4 and 6. You can also find that story in Isaiah 38 and then referenced in Jeremiah 26. Not only is the prayer almost instantaneous, which is encouraging and challenging, but we also see that one path that Hezekiah was on, that path changed because he prayed. And it seems edgy to say, but God seems to have changed his mind as a result of the prayers that were prayed. So God's character doesn't change. God's will is always for his people to be renewed and in communion with him. But it seems that maybe some of those secondary storylines, which felt very primary to these people, were different because they beseeched the Lord in prayer. In Matthew 13 and Mark 6, we see kind of the inverse happening, even in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth. He thinks that, that maybe he's going to have the opportunity to heal, to share the good news of the kingdom. And yet it tells us, That because of the unbelief, probably because of the familiarity they had with the person and story of Jesus, Jesus was only able to do a few miracles, and not all of the fullness of his goodness was experienced. This story reminds us that even in the New Testament and the New Covenant, God responds accordingly to our actions. Now, there's something that I was thinking about as I was preparing uh, for our time together that I wanted to make sure I said, There's this kind of phrase, I think, that can get passed around between pews, maybe with a church bulletin or two that says, God helps those who help themselves. And I just think that that isn't true. Some people cannot help themselves. Some people don't have the capacity to change their circumstance or situation by sheer will or grit. But I also think it disconnects our actions and God's providence. And that's why I love the idea focusing on empowerment, right? Because if fatalism, fatalism can lead us to be hopeless and helpless, but with the Spirit as believers, we can be hopeful and empowered, it means that our actions, the path that we take, isn't like apart from God and we're asking Him to like, would you bless this or would you change your mind to this? But we are actually agents of change, bringing heaven to earth as we've been sharing in the past few weeks empowerment is beautiful because it shows that the Holy Spirit is willing not just to work in us, but to work through us. And those are the greatest stories of life change. When a student or student leader shares, this is what the Lord did in me, and by extension, this is what he did through me. What I don't want us to do is slip out of fatalism and into this kind of puritanical work ethic where we just work, 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 work and then we, we want God to bless it. No, he's in the work with us. And in fact, as you maybe are thinking about your career or vocation, I want to put something before you. As I read scripture, as I think about work being instituted pre-fall, pre-sin in the garden, as I think through the lack of options that people had in the Old and New Testament for vocations in comparison to all the options you and I have, I think what's more important than where you work or who you work for is how you work, how you relate to those around you and how you let people experience the gospel through you in your workplace. That's why in Colossians 3, we read an interesting idea that we're to work, not as if we're working for this CEO or that brand or business, but that we're to work as if working directly for the Lord. Now, you might feel a little bit confused or jumbled, or maybe all the things that I'm talking about today you just had assumed, and you've been kind of kind of correctly on this path and you've kind of navigated around some of the tumbleweeds that some of us haven't had the privilege of skipping out on. What's important for us to hear as a community is that God can give meaning to anything. That's the power of redemption. That God can turn something that the enemy intended for evil or harm and he can use that, repurpose it to form us to shape us, to bless us, and even more importantly, to help bless those around us. I think sometimes the idea of heaven later, or as N.T. Wright talks about in his work on Paul, it wasn't common in the early church. In fact, when Paul thought about heaven, he was most likely thinking about earth being made new and God working heaven here and now forever. It wasn't an escape. It was a renewal. And I think sometimes that's why some of us that may have grown up with the more kind of conservative theology or or really emphasized the sovereignty of God and minimized some of the freedom that we have in the options we make that may be focused on what God did in his plans and purposes and forgot that God is dynamic and engaged in a relationship with us, I think that might be why some of us have been slow or in the past have been slow to engage in social justice work, for instance, because we're thinking of heaven later, external, out there, when in reality, the early church was working and praying and cultivating, fighting for and fasting for more of heaven right here. See, if I'm a fatalist and I think all that's happening has a capital R reason and what's happening is going to happen, then I have a pretty good logical reason to disengage from the work right in front of me. And then I have a really big picture of joy and goodness for the work later that I will experience, but it doesn't always help those who don't yet believe or what I like to call not yet Christians. What's interesting about the life and ministry of Jesus is it seems that everything that He did had an impact on those who did not yet believe. That He was, as Stephen Covey talking about, beginning with the end in mind. It's why Dr. Robert E. Coleman in the Master Plan of Evangelism talks about Jesus being a brilliant change maker, investing in the few, His disciples, the twelve, then the inner circle, the three, and then through them, somehow you and I, thousands of years later, languages and countries removed, are following Jesus, reading some of the words that he spoke. So I think that anytime we make a theological shift, I want us to be candid about something. We're never going to find a perfect theological term or system that scratches all of our itches, that affirms us in the right places and challenges us in the other places because a perfect theology isn't a system it's a person and his name is Jesus but i do think sometimes heresies get in the way of us fully experiencing Jesus as he wants us to experience him now if you're trying to jettison or you're considering jettisoning some of this fatalism or determinism i want to i want you to be i want to be careful here Um, Because it's important, as Scripture tells us, that when we remove something from our lives, that we replace it with something. Uh, I'm not saying that you are now the controller of your own destiny. Go out and do what you want. I'm saying that the Holy Spirit will work in you and through you, but that we need to be aware of the realities around us. The injustices and the joys, the tragedy and the triumphs. Maybe this series is kind of (laughs) making you rethink a lot of things. Here's what I don't want you to rethink, that God is good, that Jesus is pursuing you, and that the Holy Spirit is at work. It's always scary to admit we might have been wrong. We might have seen things partially. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about it like we see in a mirror, but the mirror is kind of foggy. We can only testify in part, prophesy in part, but one day we'll have a fuller picture I'm just convinced that the work of disciples of Jesus isn't to wait until eternity to work on seeing that full picture. But instead, through community, through Scripture, and through the Spirit, to engage in seeing that fuller picture now. And in my opinion, we will be better positioned as ambassadors of Christ if we're honest about why things happen in the world around us, and if we're willing to view the world as a little bit messy, as this cosmic spiritual battle with good and evil, with principalities and powers which we may not know but could be at work. I love how my pastor, Jenny Wong-Claevil at NCC, talks about evil being real and true, and it's beyond a person. And we need to grieve that, mourn that, and then we need to begin addressing that. When we talk about spiritual warfare, either now or in the future, it's not about walking in fear, but it's about walking in a full reality and then seeing God move despite what's happening around us. Now, I know sometimes ignorance is bliss, but when it comes to God, the more we know, the more of Him that we can love. And then when we have that picture, it will be an even better picture to present to those who don't yet know Him that are around us. So as we think through our response— As we begin to worship as a community through song, I want to pray this prayer over you. God, I pray that as we worship and sing, that we would let your goodness invade and pervade all areas of our mind, all areas of our heart, that you would help us to realize that you're inviting us into this adventure, into this mission, into this plan of effecting real change, that we're not just symbols of hope. We're not just signposts of hope, but we're bringers of your hope, empowered by your Spirit. And God, as we think through the faith that we've been handed, I pray we would be honoring to those that handed us faith, while also through your Spirit thinking critically about what to hold on to and what to let go of. God, let us not walk as theologians in pride, but instead come to a place of even more humility as your goodness is displayed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.